ReachMD now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And April is Focus on Cancer Month on ReachMD and Cancer Control Month nationally. As part of our exploration of topics related to cancer, we'll be talking today to Dr. Gail Sulik. She's the author of the controversial new book, Pink Ribbon Blues, How Breast Cancer Culture Undermines Women's Health. As the title implies, Dr. Sulik has some unique views on breast cancer and the movement and how we can best support patients dealing with the disease. And later in the show, we're focusing on physician training. A new study has come out examining the effects of shorter resident work hours on patient care. Call it a progress report, and the results might surprise you. We'll also be talking about work hour mandates and whether patient care improvements are the ultimate goal. That shorter hours or shorter residents, Matt. Good point. Plus, we'll update our listeners on some new health hazards out there, like a drug cocktail called bath salts. It's a serious story, trust us, when we say these are not relaxation agents. No, they are not. And what does shopping have to do with men's health? I'll go shopping. Well, one study says shopaholics like Michael have it made in more ways than you think. All that and more are coming up on this edition of Second Opinion Live. Don't touch that dial or we'll be out there to turn it back for you. That is exactly true. First, some recent medical headlines. Now, this is a story we came across on American Medical News from the AMA, which I might add runs every week on ReachMD. Shameless plug aside, this story did catch our attention. It's about bath salts. And in case we haven't already made this clear a minute ago, we're not talking bath salts you put in a bathtub. These are new emerging stimulant drugs. They're synthetic. They're very powerful easy to get, and technically legal in the U.S., if you can believe it, provided they're labeled as plant food or bath salts, hence the common name bath salts. So a lot of people who take them recreationally think they're safe, mainly because they're legal. But newsflash, they are not safe. No, they are not safe. Definitely not. And reason number one, bath salts contain mephedrone, which has effects similar to MDMA, amphetamines and cocaine. And reason number two, they're completely unregulated, so doses can vary wildly from one bath salt masquerading product to the next. This may explain in part why we're seeing a rapid increase of ER cases and poison control center alerts due to bath salts. Mm. This is a serious thing. In July 2010, there were only three cases reported, but in the last nine months, that number's climbed into the thousands. So it's relatively new on the scene, but you should keep an eye out for it as our practicing listeners. Bath salts are sold both online and at places like gas stations and tobacco shops. They're given other thin covers like incense, plant food, insect repellents, etc., etc. But those in the know are buying them to smoke, snort, inject, and imbibe. Definitely not what they're doing with incense, plants, foods, or insect repellents. Now, some clinical tips. Patients often hit the emergency departments with hallucinations, paranoia, violent, sometimes suicidal behaviors that can last for several days and often get worse over time. You should look for dilated pupils, rapid speech, agitation, of course, and soaring heart rates and blood pressures. Now, benzos won't calm these patients down, and psychotic behaviors often reappear as soon as the sedation wears off. But antipsychotics have been used successfully. Yeah, well, the good news is that several states have managed to ban bath salts, including Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and North Dakota. More states are expected to follow suit. So hopefully fewer bath salt cases will be making their way in the emergency departments. This is a serious new drug, everybody, and something we need to be paying attention to and looking out for. Absolutely. All right, speaking of things you might find in your bathroom, which probably doesn't include bath salts, but it's my transition, so go with me here there, Michael. Here's a potential new way for patients to monitor their health. 
Now, students of synthetic biology at Cambridge University have engineered special E. coli bacteria they're calling E. chromi because it's colorful. Michael, here's the pop question for you, pop quiz question. Guess how that color can be useful diagnostically? And I'll give you a hint. The exam table in this case, yeah, it's your toilet. Let's see. I'm going to have to go with rainbow poop for 500, Matt. <laughs> and let me just add that I'm not sure if I love or hate where this story is going. It's one of the best I've ever, we've ever had, though. Correct indeed, mm. Michael. Imagine a probiotic yogurt full of bacteria that secretes different colored pigments based on what they encounter in your GI tract. So the idea is to biomark GI infections or diseases with specific colors, and you already know where those colors are going to show up. That I do, and <laughs> just think of the reference chart you're going to need for something like this. Not the kind of catalog you put in your coffee table, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you would, Matt. I yeah. bet you have a coffee table full of colored poop on your coffee ta- <laughs> catalog in your coffee table. Uh, I am working on it, and calling it a catalog is actually close, because I think what they're doing is calling the term scatalog in this case. And you know the classic phrase, Michael, so many colors, so much poo, so little time. Oh, you're so clever, oh, wise one. <laughs> right. Well, I should get paid or, for comments this, like that. This will be, we do. This will be a good early warning system for patients. It always gets my nod of approval. But joking aside, there's some problems to solve before this idea can plop into toilets nationwide, there's such as one. keeping the body's immune system from attacking the E. bacteria. And of course, this idea would have to get by that little checkpoint called the FDA. Just a little. We all one. love them. Little checkpoint. But in the meantime, we hear the Museum of Modern Art in New York City is including E. in an exhibition opening the summer called Talk to Me about new modes communicating between people and objects or people and poop. <laughs> yeah, and in this case, <laughs> talk to your this poop. This is certainly one way to communicate with that object. I'll definitely give you we that. We kept this with a good taste, Matt. We're proud of ourselves. Very good taste. All right, time to move on to the next story. For those of you who tuned into our last show, we looked at the health risks and effects of radiation from the nuclear power plant disaster in Japan, which I understand is getting worse. They've now pushed up to a Chernobyl type event. One of our guests was radiation epidemiologist Dr. John Boyce. And if you listen to our show, which you should have been, you remember this moment during our conversation in which he explained that radiation, to some degree, is already everywhere. We live in this sea of low-level radiation. We're breathing radioactive radon gas right now. The water we drink has low levels, naturally, of radium and uranium and thorium. If you like bananas, that's a very strong source of radioactive potassium. And so we kind of have a little bit of radiation all the time. Let me backtrack for a second. Why is it radioactive when we talk about potassium levels in bananas, for instance? Okay, isn't that interesting? Yeah, we know that the kind of radiation that workers at the Fukushima plant in Japan have been exposed to, it has nothing to do with the levels present in bananas. But I just want to point out that we all did get pretty excited about these supposedly hot bananas. Oh, I did, man, because bananas just went on no points on Weight Watchers, and I could have as many as I wanted. Suddenly, I wasn't sure I wanted to be eating very many of them. Well, fast forward to this week, and we see the New York Times this headline. Is this the poster food for a radiation menace? And guess what it was? A picture of a banana. <laughs> Turns out that the same thing happened in, in the New York Times reporter Denise Grady when she talked to experts about radiation. They also went and brought up bananas. Well, we're all going bananas, bananas over bananas. Bananas, I bananas, bananas Michael. Yeah, well, maybe we are, but let's not uh, sound the alarm yet. Apparently, bananas are just a more potent source of radioactive foods because of their comparatively high potassium levels. But you can keep eating them. It's okay. Apparently, potassium is trace radioactivity, but experts aren't giving up bananas 
just on that account. So I think we're okay there. And we're still drinking water here. I don't care if it's radioactive. We're still breathing. Well, yours is radioactive. But I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering just how radioactive is a banana? You know, if we're going to raise the threat level to level banana, level yellow. I mean, it says that the New York Times article, don't expect to see a Geiger counter pick up much or even differentiate from other random food selections tested loosely like apples, oranges, even granola bars in the case of the writer's husband. So moral of the story, if you're living someplace where radiation levels aren't a threat, just go ahead and eat those bananas. This show is a national treasure for stories like this. We should win an award. Okay. <laughs> and one last headline that will ca- that will catch or may catch our male listeners off guard. Don't let your wife hear this. Regular shopping may stave off death. According to a Taiwanese study, elderly people who shopped every day were found to be 27% less likely to die over a 10-year period than those who shopped once a week. I'm going shopping. Investigators looked at the shopping habits of nearly 2,000 people over the age of 65 and asked them how often they went shopping, with options ranging from never to every day. They also followed employment status, lifestyle factors, and prevalence of chronic health conditions. And then, Matt, participants were tracked through their lifespans, and wouldn't you know it, what? the data revealed a possible relationship between continuing vitality and the need to shop for things, like mm. blue light special, because after all, you don't need to buy much when you're dead. We'll hit that aisle 13. And I'm going to take exception to that, because I've got a giant pyramid in production for my send-off, and <laughs> I think that'll take at least a 1,000 years to pay off, so speak for yourself. Anyway, there were some interesting numbers here. Apparently... Researchers found that those who shopped daily were 27% less likely to die during the 10-year study period compared to those who shopped only once a week. And between the sexes, male daily shoppers were 28% less likely to die, while female shoppers were 23% less likely to die. So now, my friend, <laughs> this is definitely mass consumerism what at if its you're finest. Out, what if you're out shopping for bath salts? What, how does that count? Well, we'll have to find I out. I don't know. I just hope online shopping doesn't count, Matt, because if it did, eBay fanatics would live forever. Imagine that ticket to mortality. Log on and live forever. <laughs> I think I'll still take the pyramid tomb route. All right. In keeping with this theme of consumer image around health and disease... Why don't we introduce today's guest who's taken an interesting position on one of the most visible public health campaigns of all time. Dr. Gail Sulik is author of Pink Ribbon Blues, How Breast Cancer Culture Undermines Women's Health. Dr. Sulik is a medical sociologist and a 2008 fellow of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Dr. Sulik, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Hello. Hi there. All right. Can you start off by giving us a little background about the history of this pink ribbon movement and how it's gotten where it is? I see pink ribbons everywhere. They are everywhere, and they're everywhere every month of the year, not just October at this point. Um, and, yeah, it, it's been around uh, since 1992 when the Pink Ribbon was born. Um, but the whole advocacy movement that, that started this, this whole uh, shift toward awareness and visibility um, was really started in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and that was really an effort to bring women's health forward uh, as a public issue and an effort to destigmatize the disease itself. Um, cancer was was hidden, not only breast cancer, but cancer in, gen- in general was very hidden. Don't talk about it. Be afraid of it. It's a death sentence. Uh, and so part of the awareness shift was to, to kind of move breast cancer out of the closet into the light, shine a light on it. Um, and enable people to to think about it, talk about it, find support, get information. And from there, it kind of snowballed, a giant pink snowball at this point, uh, into something very different. 
Right. I remember my parents and my in-laws, they wouldn't even use the word. It was the big C. We never talked about it. I remember relatives dying from cancer, and we never talked about it. So it seems your perspective is that breast cancer is being used in this campaign as a sort of marketing tool. Can you talk about that? Is that an accurate way to frame it? It is accurate. Um, you know, the, the ribbon, when it first had come onto the scene, was oriented to be a symbol like any other symbol, and it was building on the successes of the red ribbon for AIDS awareness, which was very successful. Um, but the difference with the pink ribbon is that it actually was born in a boardroom, and so it came out of a campaign uh, from Self Magazine and also work with um, Estee Lauder, Evelyn Lauder of Estee Lauder, and the goal was to get awareness out via cosmetics counters throughout the nation, um, and that's what happened. And so the the ribbon became pink. It became very feminized, uh, representing all that is good about women and femininity and sugar spice and all things nice. And it, that was also a, a move to help to destigmatize it because everything around cancer is really negative and bad. So let's put a pink ribbon on it and and boost up, boost it up a little bit, make it a little more uh, lighthearted. From there, there was a lot of uh, goods and and things that then became attached to it. So you talked about the pink snowball. You said this thing snowballed out of control. At what point do you think there was that tipping point in which things got out of hand or the aim changed? Or from our perspective, I mean, some would ask the question, do the ends justify the means overall? I mean, you, you seem to be pointing the finger at saying, no, they don't. I mean, I'd like to hear your perspective on that. Sure. Well, I, I think there, there was a really big shift. I, we could see, and you could probably even see as well, that in the last three to five years, there are many, many more pink ribbons out than there were before that. So there was a shift around early 2000s as uh, corporate cause marketing had already taken hold, but it started to really take hold for breast cancer. Um, corporate partnerships were growing exponentially, and it's just continued to grow over the years. And one of the figures that that I've heard uh, quite a bit, and I still haven't been able to track down everything that makes up this number, but the number is that $6 billion a year is raised in the name of breast cancer. And that doesn't mean that money goes to breast cancer, but things are sold in the name of it, in the name of the cause. Um, and so when you think about, okay, what might the consequences of this be, there are actually a lot, some positive, more negative, I think, and that's why I, I question it. And you're probably going to say, okay, what are those <laughs> negative consequences? <laughs> right, you right? are. Yeah. You saved us um, the time of asking. Go right ahead. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you can start to think about the negative consequences if you can remind yourself of what are the things that, that you see out in the culture with a ribbon on it. Um, are you familiar with the Kentucky Fried Chicken Pink Buckets? We are familiar with that. Michael, more than so than myself. Oh, be quiet. I do not eat them. <laughs> well, there was a big uproar around this particular campaign because it was selling fast food for the cure. Um, there are um, alcohol that you can buy for the cure. I just saw an ad last week for a pub crawl for the cure. So there's, there's an idea here that we're selling things that actually contribute to the cancer burden or that are risk factors, but we're doing it in the name of the cure of breast cancer. Um, I also see a lot of misinformation that is connected with ads and promotional materials, um, survival statistics that are incorrect or that are embellished to focus on either 
stage zero breast cancer or very early breast cancer, suggesting that this is the survival for everyone. Um, I see ads. Uh, I saw an ad last year um, for mammography, and the headline said, um, "Everybody's doing it, shouldn't you?" And so, just in you know, in the time where the the protocols were shifting, you don't necessarily need your mammogram every year at 40. Shift to every other year at 50. Instead of getting that information out to the public, why is this shift happening? It's just do it because everybody else is. So you see lots of stuff going alongside these campaigns that are providing health information that are not accurate at all or are not contextualized so that they make sense to people. So the pink ribbon around the bottle of wine is really kind of like killing for peace, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, back to the questions. Matt. One question that comes to me here is that we still haven't fully addressed, you know, the million-dollar question, do the ends justify the means? Because money, as you mentioned, doesn't entirely go towards what people would initially think it goes to, which is greater awareness, uh, more research for cures. You're saying the money doesn't necessarily get allocated to that, even through these foundations that are, I guess, hypocritical in nature, Kentucky Fried Chicken, for instance, and these others that are doing these fundraising things. Some would look at on that and say that's still the ends justify the means, though, because good is coming out of that. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, I guess I would ask, what is the good? What oh. is the good? <laughs> <laughs> you got us there. <laughs> well, the question being, is yeah. money actually being allocated towards services that could help people, whether they're support groups, support services, cure research, medical services? I mean, where is this money going? If you're saying that it doesn't all go towards these services, where does it go? Yeah. Well, it goes to a lot of different things. Some of it doesn't even make it to any organizations at all. So the pub crawl last week didn't have any indication that any of the money being made in the name of the cause was actually going toward the cause in any way at all. So you have those that exist, that you just put a, put a pink ribbon on it, say it's for the cure, for the fight, for some ambiguous category of awareness or research, and it really doesn't go anywhere at all. So you have Lots of examples like that. But then you have specific examples. You may be familiar with the um, the very famous I Heart Boobies bracelets. Um, <laughs> again, no. again, Michael's far more familiar <clears throat> with that I than I am. I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue what these are. Okay, so so there are lots of campaigns, Save the Tatas, Don't Let Cancer Steal Second Base, I Love Boobies is the new rage, especially in uh, middle schools and high schools. Um and none of this money for the, these foundations actually go to research. Um, they go into a category to, called education. They are very often linked to breast self-exam and promote the idea that BSE is the way to stave off or find breast cancer early. And yet the National Cancer Institute um, doesn't even recommend BSE anymore. And in, in trials, BSE has not been found to find cancers early or to reduce mortality. So I would say it's a harm to put out information that BSE is, ed, you know, BSE is a way to educate people about breast cancer when it's not recommended by these bodies who do the research to find out whether it is or not. So that's, that's one kind of thing um, that's happening that's called education that I would argue is not exactly education. Um, then you have the research question, right? The largest um, breast cancer organization in the world only spends 21% of its program on research. Um, only 2% of research overall goes toward metastatic disease, 
which is what is most responsible for the 40,000 deaths that we continue to have every year. Um, so we may need to just shift. If all of this money is available, if we shift it around, we might actually do a better job and, and produce more good. What kind of alternatives would you suggest? What are some more helpful support channels for breast cancer patients? If this kind of campaign is ultimately negative from your perspective, what would you think would be a positive step? Yeah, well, I think they're not all negative. I think, um, you know, there's no need to throw out the baby with the bathwater, um, that there is a lot of awareness that has happened. Um, but studies have come out to show that the awareness effort has, does it, has done its job. And people know about breast cancer now. They know about screening, though they don't necessarily know the caveats of false positives, false negatives. Um, but it, it's done its work, and now there is an opportunity to shift and recalibrate the direction of the movement to focus on things that are very evidence-based and to focus on coordinating research so that the, the possibility of eradication is really there. Um, the National Breast Cancer Coalition is an organization strongly um, supporting that. Um, that organization made a, an unprecedented statement last year um, where the, the president actually had stated that um, she had given up on hope and that we didn't need any more awareness. And the reason for that was that we needed concerted effort and action. And I think that's really where, where the movement is today, that it needs, that's the shift that it needs. Okay. One more quick last question. Looking at the campaign, the public characterization of breast cancer distorts people's ideas about what it's like to be a cancer patient. I, mean, I always see these cancer women, patients like women like, yes, we're great and we look healthy and we have all our hair. Can-do attitude. Can-do. How do you feel about that? Well, it works for some people. Some people really do feel that way. So for them, it, it works really well. Um, there are other people who don't necessarily feel that way. Um, there are many distressing emotions and negative outcomes and fears about death um, that don't make their way into the festive, cheerful public discourse. Um, and so by, by focusing on the festivity and the triumphant aspects of survivorship, sometimes we forget that that's not the experience of everyone and that people are still dealing with recurrences. Um, about a third of people who are diagnosed with invasive breast cancer will have a recurrence. Uh, when recurrence happens, the survival statistics go way, way down, considerably farther down. Um, and so those realities are very important to acknowledge. And you feel that that upbeat attitude sets up patients to fail in some regard or feel like they're not uh, matching the status quo of what they see on TV? They're not good enough. They're not succeeding. Yeah, you're not, good, you're not a good enough survivor. And so we've almost, in, in a sense, replaced one form of stigma with another one. Before you were stigmatized if you even had cancer, but now you're stigmatized if you're not the upbeat, triumphant cancer survivor. And so it can be very isolating for some people. Yeah, you only got a C in cancer. You weren't good yeah. enough. That's sobering to think about, but it is an interesting perspective you add. I'm not sure all our listeners would agree wholeheartedly. I think some still side with that mentality of, hey, you know, the ends still justify the means. At least the awareness is good. Optimism is good from our perspective as providers. We always want our patients to be upbeat if they can, even if they meet a very difficult experience. But I, I agree, there's a lot of value in your sentiment right. here. And I'm not eating fried chicken to cure cancer. No, thank you. <laughs> no, but you're so right, though. I mean, hope from an individual perspective. We all need it. You know, what makes you get up out of bed in the morning for anybody? 
Um, and the so thought of doing guys, a show with Matt, that's what gets me out of bed. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that would be a good incentive. Um, but it, it is. It's crucial. It's crucial. And um, so to, to try to think about how to really support people in their version of hope, what they find hopeful and uplifting, could could make the umbrella a little bit bigger for awareness and for support of, of breast cancer. That's a perfect send-off statement. Our guest today has been Dr. Gail Sulik, author of Pink Ribbon Blues, How Breast Cancer Culture Undermines Women's Health. Dr. Sulik, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much. All right, now on to the forum. The debate over residents' work hours is back in the spotlight. In 2003, guidelines were changed to limit resident work hours, weeks to 80 hours. And this coming July, a series of rules will go into effect that detail length of shifts as well as workload, rest periods, and patient load. But a new report in the British Medical Journal, British Medical Journal, I should add, reviewed all published data on the effects of restricting resident work hours in the United States and Europe. Doctors in the European Union are already restricted to a 52-hour work week. And in 2012, get this, it will be made 48 hours a week. We wouldn't I, want to I work too 48 much. hours a day. <laughs> so do better rested doctors make them more or less prepared for work beyond residency? That's question number one. Number two, does patient care improve or suffer with work hour restrictions? Now let's review what the study found. All right, let's review this. Now the article reviewed 34 published studies from the past 10 years. They were focusing on the quality of patient care. Now one thing to think about here, few of those studies were comparative or large enough to offer really useful or definitive evidence in this case. We're comparing apples to oranges. The second thing to think about, the second caveat, is that researchers often had to compare trainees with fully trained physicians. Like, once again, oh. apples to oranges. Well, that's like, great. There's you, a control for you. You to, you to me, you know, <laughs> That's Matt? a great control group. That's right. Or with data before work hour mandates because work hour rules went into place all at once and across the board. So there were no 100-plus hour work weeks to compare the new rules to. And this put most investigators in the position of having to compare residents with attending physicians or with old data from the time before work hour mandates went into effect. This is like flawed. Yeah, that, Even that, I know that. <laughs> Even Michael knows Even that. Even I wears, know that. Who wears crazy bracelets and eats a lot of Kentucky Fried Chicken. All that said, <laughs> what did the review find? Well, nothing, apparently. Decreasing fatigue of junior doctors with work hour restrictions has not led to changes in patient outcomes one way or the other. So... I guess the jury is still out. But clearly, improving care is way more complicated than just reducing work time. I think everybody's starting to figure that out. And one argument by the authors is that work hours are still being decided on the basis of a hunch. That's a huge point. A hunch. On a hunch. Yeah, let's run our nation by a hunch. Let's run everything by a hunch. And so, uh, with, Well, we do already, don't we? <laughs> yeah, well, evidence-based hunches. So the question is, are we reducing hours for doctors good or for patients? And if the doctors are better rested and the patients fare the same, is that a win-win? I don't know. It still sound, it sounds like a win-win. As long as patient outcomes aren't getting worse, right, it seems to me that if you're making, giving doctors an easier time of it, at least early on, so they can transition into the terrible lifestyle that is being a physician, it seems like a win-win. I'm going to take a nap during the day, every day. I'm going to be well-rested. You know, I'm going to take a nap during the middle of the show next time. I thought you did that already. You know, you know what? This whole debate, I think it's getting kind of silly. You know, I'm one of the old guys, and even though I was in a Durham residency, we didn't work that many hours a day. We still worked. There were no rules. You were done when the clinic was done. Right. And that was the way it was, and that's the way it is in my office. You're done when you're done. We're taking these kids out from a structured environment into a world that doesn't have structure. When the patient calls, you're there. And I, I am a feared 
math of what's going to happen in the future. When these people come out and they're used to a nine-to-five workday, that's not how medicine works. Right. I'm actually kind of amazed that outcomes have not gotten worse over the past year or two, simply on the fact that there are so many more patient exchanges, transfers, so much more that you'd expect that there would be all sorts of errors that would occur in every exchange and transfer, despite having physicians or residents who are more better rested. You know. So another outcome we have to think about, number of years before career burnout, this might affect that too. Maybe in a positive way. Maybe uh, physicians won't get burned out as quickly. And what do you think about that? I don't think so. I think if you take care of yourself as a physician, you don't burn out so well. I think the burnout comes from later on when you don't take the time to take care of yourself. You don't have to work 120 hours a week. Or maybe you do. I don't know. This is something we're going to talk about from now on. Okay. We kind of have to end this show today. I think it was a great show. I love the poop story. It was my favorite. I hope we bring it back again. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll bring it back again. And the interview, that was great today. But there were so many lines when I – she was such a good straight person with those bracelets. I had to bite my tongue. Okay. <laughs> we have to leave it there for this edition of Second Opinion Live. We continue to follow the work hours mandate issue and get your opinions on it. Until then – It's been a pleasure being with you today, Matt. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And it's been a greater pleasure to be with you, Dr. Greenberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. To access an audio podcast of this show, you can visit us at reachmd.com slash SOL. You can also listen to us on your iPhone with the Medical Radio app. All sorts of shameless plugging here. And I have an iPhone. I have an iPhone. Well, check this out, BlackBerry users. We have something new coming out for you very soon. Stay tuned for that news. And a very special thanks to the makers of E. coli's colorful cousin, E. Chromi. I know Michael's <laughs> looking forward to some new adventures there. I can't wait. <laughs> and special thanks to Tony and Paula and Alex in the control room. You guys are the best. We worship everything you do. Thanks for listening, everyone.